Welcome to the Science Update Podcast. I'm Bob Hershon, and this is the podcast for July 19th, 2013. The Science Update Podcast is produced by AAAS. Advancing science, serving society. We're not trying to eliminate the field biologist. Instead, what we want to do is provide them with better data and a more complete picture of the areas that they're working in. In some extreme cases, some of these sauropods might have had up to 10 teeth in each tooth socket just lined up, baby teeth ready to go as teeth were worn down. Pretty much every human being is able to throw extremely well, and precisely it's just that we no longer practice the skill. This week, we'll tell you what baseball has in common with ancient hunting techniques, and what dental records from the Mesozoic era can tell us about the lives of dinosaurs. Also, could vaccinating children protect the elderly as well? But first, Suzanne Bard reports on an automated nature recording system that's monitoring environmental damage. If you really pay attention to nature, you'll notice that each place has a unique set of sounds. Researchers are using those sounds to assess how different environments respond to change over time. Biologists have teamed up with computer scientists to develop a network of automated acoustic monitoring stations. They use iPods to record one minute of natural sounds every 10 minutes, according to University of Puerto Rico tropical ecologist Mitch Aid. And it allows the biologist to collect data 24 hours a day, seven days a week throughout the year. We're not trying to eliminate the field biologist. Instead, what we want to do is provide them with better data and a more complete picture of the areas that they're working in. In a sense, each one of these recorders is the equivalent of a field biologist. The sound files are automatically uploaded to a website where they can be rapidly analyzed. The system can identify the birds, frogs, and insects living in a habitat. Monitoring which species are present over long periods of time will help scientists understand how ecosystems respond to environmental disturbances like global warming and habitat disturbance. And anybody today or in 5, 10, or 20 years from now can go back to those recordings, analyze them with new tools and new ideas. Thanks for that report, Suzanne. Americans have been obsessed with baseball for over a century, but our ability to throw a fastball goes back millions of years. According to Harvard anthropologists Neil Roach and Dan Lieberman and their colleagues, the unique anatomical features that allowed our ancestors to hunt large game with spears emerged around two million years ago with our ancestor Homo erectus, the first hunter-gatherer. Lieberman explains. When a pitcher throws or somebody throws a spear, they cock their arm back. When you cock your arm that way, you store up an enormous amount of elastic energy like a catapult, and then you release that energy almost instantly, and it's the fastest motion in the human body. And pretty much every human being is able to throw extremely well, store all that elastic energy in their shoulder, and do various other things that enable us to throw accurately. And, and precisely, it's just that we no longer practice the skill which is why most people don't think very much about it anymore. Lieberman says the ability to hunt with spears changed the composition of our diet, allowing us to hunt more meat, which helped drive the evolution of larger brains. Today, the way in which we appreciate human athletics, we enjoy watching baseball pitchers throw fastballs 100 miles an hour. We enjoy watching all these sorts of athletic activities as a form of entertainment or sport. 
But those activities actually result from behaviors and anatomical features and capabilities that were very important in our evolutionary history. In contrast, our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees, lack the ability to throw, and their diet consists of much less meat than ours does. Well, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Next, Suzanne takes us back to the Mesozoic era, when 100-foot-long dinosaurs roamed the land looking for food. The largest land animals that ever lived, the sauropod dinosaurs, had to eat constantly to reach their enormous size. All that eating put a lot of wear on their teeth. Now there's evidence that these dinos replace their teeth as often as once a month, according to paleontologists at the University of Michigan. Sauropods had replacement or baby teeth throughout their lifetime. So in some extreme cases, some of these sauropods might have had up to 10 teeth in each tooth socket, just lined up, baby teeth, ready to go as teeth were worn down. That's Michael Demick, now of Stony Brook University, who led the study. He says the gigantic vegetarians lived 150 million years ago, before flowering plants and grasses evolved. So they were stuck with a diet of conifers, ferns, and other tough vegetation which sped up tooth abrasion. Demick adds that much like trees, teeth have rings. But instead of adding a ring every year like a tree does, teeth lay down a new ring every day. The researchers counted those rings to determine the age of each tooth in the fossils they examined. Even though these animals lived so long ago, when we look in detail enough, we can actually learn things about the daily lives of these animals. It's really cool that we can get that kind of resolution that far back in the fossil record. Thanks for that report, Suzanne. When new vaccines come on the market, they're often given only to infants and children. But in at least one case, that still benefits older adults who never got the vaccine. Justin Warner has that story. A vaccine that's been given to babies for 10 years appears to be protecting unvaccinated senior citizens as well. This according to Vanderbilt University medical professor Marie Griffin and her colleagues. The vaccine, called PCV7, protects against certain types of pneumococcus bacteria, which cause meningitis and blood infections as well as pneumonia. Similar vaccines were available in the past, but couldn't be given to infants or young children. This is really a breakthrough in the vaccine technology where they were able to make a vaccine, conjugate it to a protein so that infants would respond to it. And so that was introduced to the routine infant immunization schedule in 2000. Griffin's team studied the impact of the infant vaccine over the past decade. The study found that pneumonia hospitalizations for children under two went down almost immediately after the vaccine was introduced and declined by 43 percent overall from 2000 to 2009. But by 2009, we also found declines in pneumonia hospitalizations in other age groups as well, people who were not vaccinated. And in those other age groups, the biggest decline were in adults 85 years and older, where there was about a 23% decline in pneumonia hospitalizations. Other health improvements over the same period, like declines in smoking, didn't correlate nearly as well with the drop in pneumonia hospitalizations. Griffin says this vaccine was well positioned to affect older, unvaccinated people because pneumococcal bacteria infect only humans and are generally transmitted from young children to adults. We know from other studies of bloodstream infections that at the time the vaccine was introduced, bloodstream infections from these bacteria declined very quickly in children. 
But there is also a decline in the same vaccine-type bacteria in older children and adults. So, at least in this case, vaccinating kids seem to have protected their grandparents as well. She adds that the vaccine was recently modified to attack more types of pneumococcus, which should amplify the benefit for those who get it and those who don't. Thanks, Justin. A breakthrough treatment for type 1 diabetes has passed its first human trial. Stanford University neurologist Larry Steinman calls it a reverse vaccine. Instead of stimulating an immune response, it selectively shuts down the rogue immune cells that attack insulin-producing cells in the pancreas. Steinman says that specificity is critical. For a disease like type 1 diabetes, that's a serious disease, but a disease that you can live a full life and a highly productive life, We don't want to try approaches that are risky or globally immune-suppressive. Treated patients also appeared to make more of their own insulin, suggesting the disease may be more reversible than expected. If the success continues, Steinman says the treatment could be adapted for other autoimmune diseases by inserting DNA specific to each disease. Well, that's our show for this week. Next week, were our ancient ancestors really eating paleo? And scientists searching for new drugs turn to the oceans. Until then, tune into the Science Update Podcast Daily Edition every day, Monday through Friday. You can find it on our website, scienceupdate.com, or at iTunes. You can also check out Science Update's fan page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. And if you have a science question, give us a call at 1-800-WHY-IS-IT. If we use your question, we'll send you a Science Update mug. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society.